This episode is brought to you by Mesmin and Seabald Locksmiths. So you've locked yourself out of the house again, or your car, or your storage unit. When seconds count, are you going to rely on an ordinary locksmith to open your car? Using their complicated tools you can't possibly understand? I don't think so. When you really need to bypass your sophisticated security system, you call Mesmin and Seabald, who will arrive at your home or place of business with a great big battering ram that'll have you back into your property in no time. No lock is too advanced for Mesmin and Seabald locksmiths. And now our listeners can get a coupon to try Mesmin and Seabald Nerd Squad for those frustrating moments when you've locked yourself out of your computer. Bring up the wolf's head. Just use the promo code reread, one word. And thank you, Mesmin and Seabold Luxmas, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Hi, Craig. Hello. We're still in Claw. Yeah. We haven't made it to Sword yet, but but I don't know. I figure we are one chapter into Claw. People might be excited like I'm excited. <laughs> progress, but we haven't made it that far yet. Oh, man. We had um, an Ask Me Anything last we week or the week, two weeks ago now. We did. It was a big hit. We have more comments on our Ask Me Anything than the other Gene Wolf podcast. <laughs> I wasn't keeping score at all. I just want you to know that those screen captures I sent you comparing it were totally random. <laughs> well, I want you to know that those extra accounts that I started on Reddit mean nothing. They have nothing right. to do with that. So, And the fact that I would just go in and respond cool and cool and cool and cool multiple <laughs> and, times, even in my I own say comments, cool? had nothing to do with trying to get that reply count up. No, but that was fun. Thank you guys so much. Yes. Coming in and, and chatting even, and it was fun to see even names we, I didn't recognize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think a couple of people did mention already, even we've, we've talked to a couple of people recently about a couple other things, but they mentioned thinking it was weird that we'd never actually met each other. In yeah. person. Like, I think we mentioned that maybe did we, maybe we didn't, but I felt yeah. like we have it. Yeah. It's, it is true. We, we true. Still have not actually face to face met, but, yeah. um, but we did, we talked and corresponded and whatever for years and years before we started this. Right. Yeah. And, but it is true. Unless there was like some moment in a Skype uh, setup where we happened to see each other on video, we've never actually conversed on video. That's probably, I think that's only voices. I think that's right too. But no, so that's one reason why somebody joked on there or maybe I joked, I can't remember, but about doing a a WolfCon sometime and Mm -hmm. that would be a perfect excuse to, not only finally have you and I meet, but have everybody else. <laughs> so I don't know. Keep it in mind. And if you, if anybody out there has experience putting together a national con that may not get massive numbers of people, but you know, we'd, we'd be interested to find out what your experiences are. I know they do a little laugh con for Lafferty. That's right. sort of like a one weekend thing up in Philadelphia, I believe is where it's been done before. But, um, but even something like that, 
even just a little bit bigger, I think right. would be a good time. So yeah. we'll think about it. If we can get the other podcast guys involved and get Mark involved and see what other names in Wolfdom <laughs> get involved, it'd be fun. Also, we have some other good news because we have corrections. Everything we know is wrong. Sean Michael Robinson upbraided us for not noting in chapter one that the innkeeper Severian was talking to, that later in, in chapter 18, when he's sleeping in the antechamber, Severian speculates that he could have been a spy. I completely blotted that one out or, you know, forgotten it without remembrance. But Severian writes, lying down again, I surrendered myself to my irritation at being unable to sleep. I thought of the herd driven through Saltus and counted them from memory. 137. So Severian <laughs> is counting cows to go to sleep. And then there were the soldiers who had come singing up from the guile. The innkeeper had asked me how many there were, and I had guessed at a figure, but I had never counted them until now. He might or might not have been a spy. So, on the matter of attention, Severian is able to review his memory for data analysis that he did not make at the time. Cool. Yeah. But you know, I thought when I was reading through this that the innkeeper could be a spy or maybe his wife. But then I said to myself, ah, that's a crazy theory. Who would ever try to spin a theory like that? So on this matter, even Severian, he doesn't know looking back on it, whether he's a spy. And I wonder, right. I wonder if Wolf felt like he knew himself if the innkeeper was a spy. Did Wolf leave mysteries in his book without solving them? I have to think that he did myself. Just, I don't know if this is one of them. It's also a good moment to notice if Severian's just sort of being paranoid too. <laughs> well, <laughs> like he's the only one. <laughs> right, yeah. But I mean, it's it, it could get back to the thing of Severian just starting to wonder, right? You know, who's yeah, yeah, yeah. I bet Wolf knew he was a spy. That's what I think. Well done, Sean. Well, we did get more in the subreddit for the last episode. There's a link to it in the show notes. Michael Andre Driussi argues for more time between the end of Shadow the Torturer and Claw the Conciliator. Remember, I argued that Claw starts the very next day after the riot at the end of Shadow. I think this particular proof is the strongest. Michael says, Sev tells Greeny, the green man, in chapter three, he left Nessus a few days earlier. Now, as Michael notes, Severian could have been referring to the day he left the Hall of Justice after executing Agalus. And if we assume that Severian's culture is like Greco-Roman, so it doesn't have a zero, even if we assume few means three, then it could refer to the day of the execution, the day traveling through the gate, and the day that he's talking to the green man. Three days. Just like Jesus was in the grave three days at Friday when he was crucified, Saturday on the Sabbath, early Sunday morning. That's few, one reading. A few days. Yeah, a few days. On the other hand, you know, maybe Severian passed through the gate and he and Jonas spent all day trying to catch up with the company. 
Bald Anders, Talos, Dorcas, and Jolenta. And then late at night, they give up and they go to sleep in a field, just collapsing. And then they, the next morning, they follow the guile to Saltus and they get there before lunch. And then, you know, that doesn't give Severian and Jonas a lot of time to share backstories. So he doesn't know how much money Jonas has, but still time to reach a level of bonding that we see between them. So when they spend the night at the inn in Saltus, you know, he doesn't know if he has any money, but they are already a pair. Not 72 hours, but still three days. That's that's still a possibility. Yeah. And a few seem significantly different from yesterday. Like mm-hmm. it's, it's like you could say a couple could mean three if you're being very casual, like that kind of thing. But yeah, it does seem like if Wolf in his head had a timeline of it being just the day before that it, it seems like he would have needed some specific yeah. reason for him to lie to the green man and just say a few days, which, right. yeah. 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 Ultimately though, although I've been committed to tabulating these days, I think Wolf used the word few because he's screwing with us. He was, <laughs> he was deliberately keeping us off balance about the, the amount of time between the end of the last volume and this one. The passage of time is just difficult. All the focus in a Wolf novel is the ever present now. But I do recognize this as part of the reason why the book made me feel so uncomfortable the first time I read it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, I just cannot believe that there could be more than that, possibly that one extra day since the end of Shadow. That much time and, you know, well, Severian doesn't stay on task very well. An extra <laughs> day and he'd have had a whole other adventure that would be, you know, difficult to paper over. So if Severian left the tower on Sunday afternoon, when the story of the claw starts, it might be Friday or it might be Saturday, but I don't think it can be longer. And no one cares but me. Interesting. Interesting. I I can I can see your argument and I can see how the text is in a different spot. Um I I have to admit I like the idea that it's much, much closer. Like I had always assumed it was longer, but it seems to make more sense that it's just one. It feels yeah. Look how look at the timeline of this. Look how fast everything goes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you get to what chapter seven, something like that, before you even get to the very next day. Is yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. However, Michael alluded to issues with the known phases of the moon during the time gap between the volumes that mm. suggest it could even be longer than that. And more on that as I get it. I don't know. On the other hand, my correction of Wolf's persistent typo, Ferentari, rather Erentari, which is an actual name for a class of skirmishers in the Roman army. Michael has added that to the errata in Lexicon Earthus. Hmm. So if I got corrected in the timeline, I made it into the errata for Lexicon Earthus, and that's a pretty fair trade. That is Wolf immortality right there. (laughs) But you, Craig, bad news for you. Oh, no. Julius Langhoff on YouTube noted that you misspelled J.C. Leindecker's last name. This was for the Don Mates uh, episode. Oh, oh, goodness. He says it's spelled Leindecker, not Leindecker. I'll have to go work on that. (laughs) Also on YouTube, Colin Kozlovich is on the trail of green-blue references in Wolf Stories as well. He's reading the Book of the Long Sun, and he noted where Silk meets Mamelta and is limping along, bruised, and is following a green line on the floor. Nicely done, Colin. Mm, That's a cool one. 
On the subreddit for the last episode, Sci-Fi Guy 1988 helpfully provided a link to an original German translation of the epigram that Wolf put at the beginning of the Claw Conciliator. Oh, interesting. It, yeah, the Book of Hymns of the Church in English, that's what it is. Uh, it's by Gertrude von Lefort. And then he also helpfully provided a Google Translate version of the poem. Of course, in poetry, auto-translators have their limits, so forgive that. But it goes like this. But strength still emanates from your thorns and from your abysses sounds singing. Your shadows lie on my heart like roses, and your nights are like strong wine. I still want to love you where my love for you ends. I still want you where I don't want you anymore. Where I start myself, I want to stop. And where I stop, I want to stay forever. Where my feet refuse to walk with me, I want to kneel. And where my hands fail, I want to fold them. I want to breathe in autumns of pride and to snow in winters of doubt. Yes, as in graves of snow, all fear shall sleep in me. I will become dust before the rock of your teaching and ashes before the flame. At your command, I will break my arms and I will support you with their extending shadow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that actually, as someone else noted, even though Wolf said that he was only familiar with those first two lines and only knew about uh, Gertrude von Lefort that she wrote those lines. The rest of this poem actually fits very well. Oh, there's all kinds of stuff in there. Yeah. And not, not just the words and the vocabulary shadows and roses and stuff like that, but the whole, I mean, I was thinking how much of that fits with the way that he describes his sort of moment of reverie and Citadel and all kinds of things. Yeah. Really well. It's also pretty cool for an auto translate that did pretty well. Yeah. I have yeah, to say. No. That came up with some suggestive things too. Yeah. Yeah. And we discussed the legend of a guillotined head continuing mm -hmm. to blink, demonstrating volition. It reminded Lord of Atlantis on Reddit of St. Denis and other cephalophores. And that had an added benefit of giving everyone the opportunity to use the word cephalophore. <laughs> a cephalophore, third time I've got to say it, is a head carrier. It's a saint who carries around his own head. And there are analogous associations in mythology. Uh, Bron the Blessed, for instance. And there's St. Gildas, who put a woman's head back on. Also, in St. Louis's That Hideous Strength, there's the condemned man whose head was brought back to life and made the leader of the evil cabal of that <laughs> novel. Mm -hmm. That was a bonkers novel, Craig. Yep. Highly yep. underrated yep. science fiction. Yep. I'm also thinking of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, where yes. the Green Knight gets his head chopped and casually right. picks it up and carries <laughs> it on out. Or By the way, we'll I'll see you next thing. year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, there's a man trapped in his house and someone has to get him out. They train you that at the Torture's Guild? <laughs> ex extraction, I guess, would be the term yeah, you'd, for it. You'd be, I'm sure they had classes on this particular kind of torture. <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to be the guy buried alive today? So. I just, the smell. That's what I think about. So, the smell <laughs> yeah, of that house. But yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I would just 
set the whole thing on fire rather yeah, exactly. than going in there. Exactly. Well, let's get on with it. All right. Chapter two, the man in the dark. So here we are, same day as chapter one. At most, I'd say this is two days since the catastrophe on the wall, but it could be, you know, just the next day. But yeah, I could see two days, but no more. Mm -hmm. So by my reckoning, Severian was exiled on Sunday, just afternoon, and it's Friday or Saturday, the 18th or 19th day after the Feast of Holy Catherine. Just on that, because I don't know that we really talked about all the different possibilities, but I know some people... When we're talking about this, assume it's been like a week or more, but um, but yeah, I think looking at the details, it does feel like less time. Yeah, um, yeah, I think I've kind of in the past always assumed that more because he and Jonah seem so familiar that maybe more time has passed. But yeah, that's that one I know we'll probably get some pushback on of like, no, it's got to be longer. But I don't know, I don't know. The details make me think it's it's shorter. Yeah, I think I think the fact that he doesn't know if. Jonas has enough money to buy his own room. He doesn't know. They they couldn't have been together long. And maybe they maybe they camped out the first night, but I don't think it's been longer than that. And we're never told exactly how far Saltus is from Nessus, right? No, they never no. Tell us no, it could precisely. It could be just yeah, just on the other side of the of the wall for all we know. Mm-hmm. So by my reckoning, if Severian was exiled on Sunday, just afternoon. Now it's Friday, the 18th day after the Feast of Holy Catherine. Last night, Severian went to Morwenna's cell and interviewed her, and now he's at the house of a man, initially called a bandit, but who is in fact a Vodalari, which to these villagers appears to be the same thing. And his name is Barnock, and he's been essentially buried alive for a significant amount of time. Mm Mm-hmm. And Severian has duties he's been hired for after they extract him, but he's not involved in the process of digging him out. This sort of punishment is called immurement. From the Book of the New Sun chapter guide, I learned that Antigone, in the Greek play of that name, she was sealed up in a cave for the crime of honoring her brother's corpse with a funeral. Mm-hmm. St. Barnak, or Barak, or Barog, or Barry was a Welsh saint of the 500s, 6th century. In most cases, saint names have no obvious connection to the character who has their name. But in this case, Craig, St. Barak's Chapel was famously excavated in the 1890s. This was on St. Barry Island, where his hermitage was. It was obviously viewed as a holy place because they found a lot of bodies buried there, even though the island itself never had more than two houses on it. So St. Barnock is especially connected to excavations and burials. Interesting. And now, of course, I'm thinking, oh, is this the Jedi Island where Luke is? <laughs> yes. Is. Yes, it is. I guess. Uh, that's, that was in Ireland, right? So. <laughs> oh, I thought you meant really. So, <laughs> <laughs> so You never know. This is depending on how how complicated your crossovers and real world. I've never seen any pictures of cows there, so maybe (laughs) so. So Varian seems to be going to the digging out incognito, wearing bright clothes that he brought from a, quote, slop man. Remember, there's a fair going 
on that the alcalde has stood up in order to make some money off the executions today. Yeah, so new clothes means that you have to picture Severian with a shirt on now. <laughs> yeah, and brightly colored, thing. he says. So mm-hmm. you, know, you could be like look like a Harlequin for all we know. I don't know which is weirder, the bright colors or the shirt. <laughs> I don't know. Like like both are so non non Severian. He must be feeling very uncomfortable, you know. Of course, he's, he was an apprentice not long ago, and they always wear That's shirts. That's true. That's so. true. I couldn't find a definition for slot man. I suppose it's like a rag man, a peddler who takes discarded clothes, and typically he sells them to parchment makers and such. He's also left Terminus S, hidden at his hotel, so, and he spends most of his time worrying whether it's safe. And this is one of the few times he actually is separated mm-hmm. from it. Yeah, he doesn't like the that. whole book. I mean, it's, it's sort of an odd moment when you think about how many times he actually is far from it. Right. In the first three books. Yeah. Yeah. The House of the Bandit is an average one for the village. It's made of broken stone from the local mine. No, not that mine, people. It's one story with a flat roof, also made of slabs of stone from the local mine. Mm-hmm. There's a chimney, but there's no smoke coming from it. There seems to be one door and one window, and they've both been blocked with stones. So it's a tomb blocked up with stone, sort of like Jesus, or to look at it another way, it's a mausoleum. Yeah, and that gets back to the connections between how this book starts and uh, and Shadow, because now we've got a second chapter where, again, we have somebody basically entombed mm-hmm. and we could talk about the first one, whether it was Severian or we're talking about possibly first Severian or just the other, whoever owned it before Severian, he doesn't know at the time. Um, and here it's someone else. So I think there's got to be a little bit of an intentional connection between whatever Barnock's going through and Severian, because Severian was the one who is living literally kind of in the tomb in the well, literally mm-hmm. kind of, I guess is a weird phrasing, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, who was, uh, you know, that was his hideout. Um, but then also there's the idea that maybe that whole experience as, as the apprentice and, and as a torturer was a bit like living in a tomb that maybe he's going to be brought out of. I don't, I think it's a little too much to push this to a kind of Plato's allegory of the cave moment of like mm-hmm. coming out into the sun but I don't know. I did feel kind of like, especially the way they describe Barnock coming out in the end, there's, there was a little bit of that, um, right. but we can get there. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. Uh, but also Severian's going to essentially come into league with a Votelari, right? In mm-hmm. the yeah. before now a Votelari. Um, they're going to be partners because he's supposed to execute him. Yep. Uh, well, again, there's a fair going on. Remember, and about a hundred spectators have gathered in front, but there's no sound coming from the house. Severian asks Jonas if this sort of punishment is common. He says it's more than common. It's traditional. He says, quote, you've heard the saying, a legend, a lie, and a likelihood make a tradition. And by tradition, before they seal him in the house, they go through the house and remove all the food, tools, and lights so that he's buried alive, truly buried alive and can't get out. And they also take anything else of value. 
The Alcalde comes up rather by surprise at this point. Severian says that he's, quote, a solid, square-built man whose open face was marred by something too clever about the eyes. <laughs> and, and, and then again, we know Severian is particularly shoddy judge of character, so your mileage may vary. <laughs> the mayor compliments his clothes and says that if he's dissatisfied with them, he should come to his place and tell him, we try to keep the traders honest that come to our fairs. It's only good business. If he doesn't make them right for you, whoever he is, will duck him in the river. You may be sure. One or two ducked a year, keep the rest from feeling too comfortable. <laughs> so... Yeah, it's so weird. This guy Wolf goes a long way to make him seem like, you know, the representative of the Better Business Bureau, who's just mm -hmm. always out like, put in a good word for our merchants and right, always right. shop local. And, yeah. And yeah, it's just, to, I don't know, it seems like a sort of unwolfian character for some reason. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if that's just the reaction I have or, or if there's just because it feels like this is one of the few people who maybe doesn't have another layer to him, that he's he's just yeah. kind of serving this little role, but but we'll see. But as a mayor, you know, he, for a small town, better business bureau, you know, being in charge of making sure commerce runs smoothly for the village is probably a major part of his job. Maybe so. Or maybe that's the joke. Maybe it's that Wolf is kind of saying about Severian being a bad judge of character. He seemed too <laughs> clever about the eyes. And yet yeah. it's everything about him is just so obvious. And, yeah, you know, he's, he's just a PR guy. Right. So in return, the alcalde, as you said, asks that. If people ask Severian where he got the clothes, that he should say it was at the Saltus Fair. And Severian agrees to do that because he's not going to wear these clothes after he leaves town. The mayor, the Alcalde, says that they're waiting for a tree trunk to be brought to use as a battering ram. Two villagers named Mesmin and Sebald are fetching it. It's not a big trunk. They wanted to keep the cost down on the number of men who had to carry it there. I guess the relative expense of this process is a burden because to fund it, the property becomes public and the people who carry out the burying and digging out get to take anything they want from the house. And no matter what, before the burying, they empty the house of any food, tools, or light. He mentions an event that occurred, well, about the time of Severian's birth, 18 years earlier. So this isn't the only time that someone judges time by Severian's birth. Um, at the end, we're going to learn from the old autarch that he started operating as the, what, the brothel runner, the pimp at the house Azure about the time he, that Severian was born. Mm -hmm. Trying to think, I'm trying, sorry, I'm just sitting here trying to think of connections. <laughs> I'm trying to think of something good to say about that, but I'm not really sure. I don't know. The same um, sort of people. Yeah, I mean, they're both. It, it makes sense for the autarch. Yeah, right? I mean, it makes sense for the autarch to do that. I don't, and but for this random guy, I'm not. Yeah, really it's sure. just random. As the Alcalde prepares to tell the story, Severian says that he threw out his chest as politicians do whenever they see an opportunity to speak for more than a couple sentences. So, anyway, this story that he's telling it involved a woman whose name the Alcalde does not remember. So he chooses to call her Mother Pyrexia. Pyrexia means fever. There doesn't seem to be a saint by that name. Maybe she was being condemned as a witch for spreading disease. I don't know. And it seems this form of punishment is a specialized skill because the Alcalde says that the people doing it now are to a degree the same people who did it then. 18 years ago, it was early summer instead of late summer. 
He knows it was apple season because the crowds were drinking cider, and he was eating an apple as they disinterred her. The house had already been sold to a new owner. So they cut a battering ram with the plan to sweep up the woman's bones. Huh. So how long did they bury someone in the house? In, a, in the current instance, and the one from 18 years ago, the occupant wasn't dead. And without water, they're not going to survive long. Maybe bones is just a metaphor. Yeah, that's what I was wondering, too, because they, they fully know they're going to go in and get Barnock and still do some awful stuff to him. Right. They know but, he's not going to um, be dead. But probably maybe the old woman was just older and less likely to survive. Or, yeah, bones is just a way to see, you know, her, her corpse, whatever's left of her, just like Barnock. Yeah. Next, as the El Calde is telling the story, when he gets to the part where he describes the woman inside, he pauses and laughs. Throwing back his head, there was something ghostly in that laughter. I'm not sure what to do with that. I I think some here is what we're doing is, I mean, thinking too that when Wolf wrote it, these chapters still have to be a little bit of a, do some world building mm-hmm. that is is still trying to remind people of the world. And part of the thing is that in the first book, we had a whole official school of tortures and everybody was afraid of them. And I feel like kind of what we're getting here is reminders that this world has all these kind of rituals around torturing and punishing people. And the Alcalde is kind of going through that stuff, even though they didn't have a torture on site, right? He's still kind of setting up. It almost feels like he's saying, you know, we still have this tradition of Mm -hmm. we may not have had a professional like you, but we knew what we were doing and Mm. we, you know, we had these procedures. And it's also kind of as for the reader, it's just setting up. Yeah. Remember, this is a world where this kind of stuff is traditional and is thought about pretty often and how brutal, brutal the world is. That's at least the sense I get. And so that laugh is kind of just a reminder that this is not seen as gruesome. This yeah. is oh, this okay, is yeah. more like, it, you know, we're, we're getting crowds here. We're getting, you know, and he's proud of it. It's it's like saying, yeah, and we did it the right way. And, <laughs> yeah. In answer to whether she was dead, the alcalde doesn't say yes or no. He sort of says that she was transformed into something else. He says, mm-hmm. It depends on what you mean by that. I'll say this. A woman sealed in the dark long enough can become something very strange. Just like the strange things you find in rotten wood back among the big trees. We're miners, mostly here in the Saltus, and used to things found underground. But we took to our heels and came back with torches. It didn't like the light or the fire either. What's the point of this story? Just a little horror story? I think so. And it's kind of introducing this whole weird aspect of people turning into monsters or ghosts or, or something like that, that I don't know that you can necessarily get super theological with it and the way this world works, but it is kind of saying that, you know, dead is something that belongs to a human. A human can be living or dead, but she became this other thing um, that madness or desperation or whatever, uh, or maybe literally she had just turned into some other monster. It's more like a, a moment of, yeah, just something really creepy mm-hmm. about the world. And and so, yeah, horror story, but I think also still kind of thinking about this as world building that, you know, it's just this cool little weird suggestion that the way things work here might be different mm. than the way that we do it, that instead of just dying through her suffering, she became some other kind of 
sad, decrepit monster or something. I don't know. I don't know. I like it though. <laughs> I think it's a cool little part of the story. So this one is so good. It definitely deserves a Curiositas Earthus song. Curiositas Earthus. Robert Borsky theorized that the salamander that attacked Thrax as Severian was fleeing was Mother Pyrexia. Uh, that's hard. Um, that's a good Borsky though. That's, I mean, yeah. if you're looking at sort of where Borsky finds connections, mm-hmm. that's cool because it does sort of link up two things that otherwise might have nothing to do, but also it kind of leaves this story. It gives the story more of a purpose. In the yeah. Book. Oh, well then that, that's um, true. Uh, I like it. I don't, I don't think it's true. Um, there's nothing in the Alcalde's tale about suggestions of what she's become that leads to the salamander thing. Um, And plus the whole point of Heather, right. Is that he can bring these otherworldly creatures in. Right. um, I don't know. I mean, the way that it's the way that the Alcalde tells the story and the fact that it's so oblique and just kind of elusive to things rather than spelling it out, leaves it open to all kinds of stuff. So it also fills you with dread about what they're going to find when they open up that house with Barney. Oh, yeah. I just like the idea that it it opens up this whole other world, that all this stuff that Severian's doing, all the torture and all the way that the world, this world treats people has bigger consequences than just being cruel. Like mm-hmm. it can actually turn back on you maybe and, mm-hmm. and become something else, something monstrous. Um, I just like that suggestion. But yeah, as far as the actual plot... Uh, I don't know. Does he, I don't remember. I, I didn't go back and look. Does he explain why he thinks that? Or is that just a Borsky kind of aha? Um, I'd have to relook. Um, I think he just thinks it makes sense. Honestly, it's often, often yeah. Borsky seems to arrive at a theory because it just seems to have a right symmetry for him. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's often, I don't Brandon. quite know. Um, yeah. A lot of them have the power of intuition for him, but I think that it depends on you having that intuition. Right. Rather than... But, you know, this whole idea of Mother Pyrexia being something other than a woman anymore, like a thing from rotten wood or, or something. What if she is a thing like the Kamehian? She can not, maybe not the Kamehian, certainly not the Kamehian, but a, Herodules that's sort of like her of the same species could be like a cacogen who had just gotten integrated in the society somehow and they burned her like a witch basically right <laughs> you know they figured yeah. out she was doing weird stuff and the reason they shut her up was yeah because she was you know different maybe not a, a witch in this world's terms of witch but uh but yeah right she was something strange and all that that came out yeah I mean because it, it's so it it could be just suggestive, right, of what solitude and being locked up does to people. But it in this world, it could also be something very specific. Yeah, yeah, I, I actually like that because it gives that story a, a little bit more heft, a little bit more meaning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's still definitely cool atmosphere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's a little that, horror but, story. Oh yeah, but with Wolf, that's always there's always the possibility that it's showing you something more, right? 
Jonas directs Severian's attention to the group of men coming with the battering ram. In front of them are the men, most of them with brass-bound staves. They have no helmets or body armor, but several are carrying narrow-headed pilates instead of staves. A pilate is a spear, a wooden pole with an iron tip. Severian is reminded of the volunteers with pikes in the first chapter of Shadow mm-hmm. of the Torturer. Those volunteers opened the gate for Severian. That volume opened and closed with the gate. These volunteers are going to open the house for Severian, and this volume opens and closes with a house slash tomb, a resurrected man, a badger. Yep. And regarding Hamlet's Mill, which is, I repeat, a touchstone for the solar cycle and all of Wolf's other novels, at least through 2009. Gates and houses are both astronomical features and are, in fact, sort of the same thing. So you have the summer gate and the winter gate. You have the houses, the sun. All of these things are constellations that rise at the solstice or at the equinoxes. Yeah, so we're definitely getting the nice symmetry of Mm -hmm. opening and closing of the book with this one. Right. Now, the Alcalde mentions two men who were going to cut the battering ram, but there are four carrying it behind armed men. It's an unfinished log that's two spans in diameter. That's about a foot or 30 centimeters and six cubics long. That's nine feet or two and a half meters. As they approach, the entire crowd sucks in their breath, and then the crowd starts cheering. The alcalde starts to supervise the effort. He turns it into a production, jumping up on the doorstep of the house to give a speech and making it all about him, you know, as politicians do. Mm -hmm. In the speech, he acknowledges that Barnack might not be dead because he hasn't been in there that long. And of course, if he's alive, they'll have to kill him. He clarifies for the first time to Severian that Barnock the Bandit is a collaborator with Vodalus's Cultillari, that means cutthroats, working as a spy, telling him about shipments that are arriving and departing. The Alcalde says hundreds and maybe thousands lie in unmarked graves because of this Barnock. Hundreds and maybe thousands have met a fate far worse. Here, Severian again sees that while he originally saw Vodalus as a champion of the people against the autark and the upper classes, the people themselves are not so enamored with Vodalus and his depredations Mm -hmm. on them. And later it'll become explicit that it is the upper classes themselves that hate the autark. And that's why throughout this volume, Severian grows more and more disenchanted with Vodalus. At least that's the way it seems to me. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep, And this was discussed, remember, in the last chapter where Severian said that a normal person in his situation would have immediately abandoned Vodalus and joined the soldiers to going to fight him. But he was trapped by that moment in the Acropolis. To him, it was like it just happened. And the devotion it gave him toward Vodalus was as strong as if it had just happened. The Alcalde goes on that Vodalus, having lost a spy in Barnock, will soon send another. On some still night, not long, I think, from now, a stranger will come to one of you. It is certain he will have much talk. 
better talk than mine, he responds to a heckler in the crowd. I'm only a rough miner, as many of you know. <laughs> He's also a politician. I'm just a humble caveman. <laughs> Much smooth, persuasive talk, I ought to have said, and possibly some money. Before you nod your head at him, I want you to remember this house of Barnock's the way it looks now, with those ashlers where the door used to be. Think about your own house with no doors and no windows, but you inside it. Think then about what you're going to see done to Barnock when we take him out, because I'm telling you, you strangers particularly, what you're about to see here is only the beginning of what you'll be seeing at our fair in Saltus. <laughs> He's become a ringmaster now. Yeah, right? yeah. And it's a whole, you know, whole cool kind of bit of propaganda, but also forming a community around the evil that you have to beware of, right? Right. And, um, and also telling the attendees all the exciting delights they're about to see. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. So turning it into something, something fun. Yeah. (laughs) So then he tells them that they've employed one of the finest carnificial professionals from Nessus. You will see at least two persons executed in the formal style with the head struck off at a single blow. One's a woman. So we'll be using the chair. That's something a lot of people who boast of their sophistication and cosmopolitan tincture of their educations have never seen. <laughs> I you, love the in the formal style. Yeah, right? It's right. like, like there, there are different varieties and styles. And yeah, you call yourself sophisticated and cosmopolitan, but have you ever seen a woman's head chopped off in a single blow? I don't think so. Right. And you will see this man, this Barnack, led to death by an expert guide. It may be that he has made some sort of small hole in the wall by now. Frequently they do. And if so, he may be able to hear me. If you can, Barnack, cut your throat now, because if you don't, you're going to wish you had starved long ago. So, Severian, who as Severian recorded, was still a Vodalari, he says, I was in agony at the thought that I should soon have to practice the art on a follower of Vodalysis. All right. So now they start. Four men use their ram on the door. Uh, that's a Hamlet's Mill reference, Craig. The proximity of house with a ram. It can suggest the constellation Aries, but if I go there, I'm going to have to say what Apu Punchao's house is at the end of the volume, and I'm not prepared to do that. Also, I can't say <laughs> whether the house itself is Ares or the previous house, Taurus. They rush the door with a battering ram, quote, losing some of their impetuosity when the two in front mounted the step. In this case, impetuosity means their force and violence of movement. The first two strikes, they fail, but... A fifth man joins, and after two more strikes, they manage to make a hole the size of a man's head. Hmm. The fifth man suggests, you know, the Hyades, which is the head of Taurus, so perhaps the ram reference is Taurus ramming. Then they knock out a bigger hole with successive strikes. Now, the crowd starts lighting torches, and the volunteers with staffs and spears take them. Severian writes, Showing more courage than I would have credited to those clever eyes, the Alcalde drew a short truncheon from under his shirt, and entered first. 
Next go the armed men and then the spectators, including Severian and Jonas. Inside, the house smells really bad, as you can imagine. There's a lot of broken furniture, suggesting mm-hmm. Barnock locked everything. And then when the men came to seal the house, they smashed it all when they were looking for valuables and stuff. Right. On a table, it appears that Barnock managed to find a candle and burned it as long as he could. It had burned down to the wood of the table that it was sitting on. People are pushing Severian in from behind, and Severian finds himself pushing back at them, less anxious to enter than he expected. Oh, he's so brave. <laughs> There's some noise at the rear of the house and an inhuman scream. And then someone shouts, they've got him! And, quote, a fattish man who might have been a small holder came running out of the dark, a torch in one hand and a stab in the other. In this case... A small holder is probably a subsistence farmer, a small holding being land, smaller than a proper farm where animals are kept and has a garden. This guy, Craig, has always made me think of Kibby for some reason. Hmm. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you do have the sort of He's carrying the out small, you know, the sort of middle-aged, middle-aged guy, sort of chubby guy. <laughs> carrying a torch. Yeah. And yeah. I don't know. The smallholder guy tells everyone to clear a path so they can bring him out. What came out was not a filthy creature with matted hair, Severian says. Instead, it was a ghost. He says, Barnock had been tall. He was tall still, but stooped and very thin, with skin so pale it seemed to glow as decayed wood does. He was hairless, bald, and beardless. I learned that afternoon from his guards that he had formed a habit of plucking his own hairs out. Worst of all were his eyes, protuberant, seemingly blind, and dark as the black abscesses of his mouth. I turned away from him as he spoke, but I knew the voice was his. I will be free, it said. Vodalus, Vodalus will come. And at this point, Severian doesn't think so either. Severian notes a lot of parallels between himself and Barnock, which, Craig, is another parallel to the Stonetown event at the end of this volume, because Severian is going to encounter essentially himself Mm -hmm. there. When Barnock speaks, his voice brings back the memory of being imprisoned at the Oubliette. All those airless days. That was 11 days, and it was five days ago. Remember that Severian sees his act of saving Thecla, who was a committed Baudelari. She never gave up information to save herself. He sees that act as a kind of rebellion precipitated by his saving Baudelus and receiving the coin. So in a way, he was also imprisoned for being a secret Baudelari. Severian says that while imprisoned, he also dreamed of being rescued by Vodalus and of going on to join him in a revolution that would sweep away the animal stench and degeneracy of the present age and restore the high, gleaming culture that was once Earth. So he has these visions of, of a civilization like you see on the covers of a pulp science fiction novel, right? Yep. He's going to make Nessus great again. Yeah. <laughs> And ultimately, Severian was not released by Bodalus, but by friendly members of the guild. Master Palamon, Drought, Rosha, 
who convinced everyone else that, quote, it would be too dangerous to kill me and too disgraceful to bring me before a tribunal. Of course, the plan is for a member of the guild, a friendly secret ally, to give Barnock his final release. Still, Severian's role in executing him is troubling to him. He writes, I tried to tell myself that he had acted, perhaps only to get money. But as I did so, some metal object, no doubt the steel head of a palate, struck the stone, and I seemed to hear the ringing of the coin Vodalus had given me, the ringing as I dropped it into the space beneath the floor stone of the ruined mausoleum. So, yeah, also Severian did what he did for money, Mm -hmm. in a way. And also we've got the ringing. I mean, it's not a bell, but the fact that there is some kind of ringing that sort of breaks him out of this reverie and makes him think is something that we've talked about happens to Severian many, many times. And what he's doing here when he Mm -hmm. has that ring is he's making all these connections between what he went through um, and what Barnock's going through are clicking. Um, And and he's really kind of seeing the, a bit of, he's starting to see kind of how he might've been misled, right? He's starting Mm -hmm. to get a little bit of self-consciousness here about how his role might have not been quite so heroic as he liked to think it was. Um, but he's still, he's still, still hanging on to it a little bit, uh, because that's his identity, but it's also this, this ringing is happening and bringing, bringing all these, uh, yeah, parallels to the fore. Yeah. And now an interesting ending to this chapter. You want to read this one, Greg? Sure. Sometimes when all our attention is thus focused on memory, our eyes, unguided by ourselves, will distinguish from a mass of detail some single object, presenting it with a clarity never achieved by concentration. So it was with me. Out of all the struggling tide of faces beyond the doorway, I saw one, upturned, illuminated by the sun. It was Agia's. The return of Agia. Yeah, um, and a lot of cool things there that, that again, she's in the sun, she's she's the face that he mm-hmm. sees in the sun. And we had all that stuff about the saints being, you know, she being kind of caught by the sun and in the, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in the jail cell. Um, also cool that he talks about sometimes our memory can, that things can break us out. Or again, what he's kind of describing is when he's caught up in his own reveries in his own memory reveries and talking about how something visual sort of catches his attention and pulls him out of it. Um, yeah. And in this case, it, uh, it's, I don't know. I was trying to think when, when I was reading this is because you have that ringing sound and because we talked about how important the ringing sound is usually when it seems like there's something deeper going on, like Severian being manipulated or finding out about, you know, you might say the first Severian or whether it's, it's, Mm -hmm. you know, something else about realizing his, larger role to play in all of this here though it's Asia that that this ringing comes out maybe since it's not an actual bell sound it's not as important oh i think it i think so i think it is i mean i think the ringing this this happens a lot i mean this is not like it rarely happens it happens over and over and one of the places you get the ringing of bells is when he goes into the rag shop and first encounters agalus yeah 
Yeah. So important moment. And of course, this is bringing back to how much Asia is going to be controlling everything still in in his life mm-hmm. and, and in and right. how this his adventures are going to play out. So, yeah. So he sees her. It's a good little cliffhanger moment, but it's also one of those things which the way it's set up makes you always, again, feel like Severian's caught up in some larger story and strings are being pulled all over the place. So mm-hmm. how did Asia oh, yes. end up here yeah. again? We don't know, right? Um, yeah. So more more of those things where he's, yeah, he's he's stuck in a much bigger story. And as the man leaves his entombment in his house, we have Asia coming back. So we've talked about the parallels between this event and the one at the end of this volume. The badger, the guy working for Vodalus. Uh, does Asia have a parallel? I've already associated her with the Kamean in the Aeneid. So that yeah, could I be mean, it. Or that's the other the other character is the or the the Kamean or the witch um that they see there. Uh that's but if you're gonna go that way of finding some parallel, then since Asia's out to kill him, then the witches also would be some kind of threat. Right. I mean, I think mm-hmm. that if, if the Cumane would be the witch, then and Agis, if we're looking for strong parallels here, then that means the witches are after him too, for some reason. Yeah. And that, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> um, or at least very much sort of controlling all kinds of things about his life. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Um, if, if you push that too far, then I feel like we're getting a little bit into Borsky territory of like looking for symmetry, plot meaning, but just symmetry. from symmetry. Yeah. Um, and but symmetry is very much the point of what's going on here, I think. Yeah, I mean, oh yeah, I think so. I think it's it, trying to build symmetry in so many different ways. Yeah, and I think that's absolutely true. I just don't necessarily see it as plot symmetry quite so much um, in in the sense that, you know, certain characters have to be certain kinds of characters because of where they are. Instead, to me, it's much more about Severian coming out of one understanding of the kind of Mm. person he was or what his life was going to be. And that's kind of like what a house is or what a school is or a tower or something and having more choices coming out into the large world. That's kind kind of why I mentioned the whole like Uh, Plato and the allegory of the cave was just because it's a little bit about realizing that everything that you had believed was an illusion and you're coming out and, and finally seeing the sun and that it's more about finding the truth behind all the appearances that, these two books are a little bit more where Severian is still living in that world dominated both by his feelings about Vodalus, but also his devotion to the tortures. And then the second two books are where he's more out of the house and he's much more open to finding something different and starts to change and eventually has this sort of weird religious moment but also where he realizes that all the forces that are going on in the world are so much more complicated than he understood that it's, it's, you know, whatever role he has to play, he doesn't even really understand it himself by that point. So to me, that's more what the house imagery does um, that it's, it's more that sort of symbolic kind of way to do it. But I don't know, maybe there is a plot. Maybe there is a plot point to the symmetry as well that I just haven't picked up. Um, Yeah. Do you have an idea who would as you, be well there is one other person there and that's Marin and both Agia and Marin have been presented as candidates for his sister but I think 
because of Agia's appearance, mm-hmm. she couldn't be his twin sister. So in that case, we've already discussed Marwena, so she could be associated with Marin. And then once again, I mean, I would guess that my biggest, my my most uh, comfortable inclination is to attach her to the command because um, I've already seen so many connections with uh, Agia and the Kamehian from the Aeneid story. And we had the suggestions that maybe she had been with the witches or that she was right. part of the runaway, runaway or something about the, the witches. weird I mean, sorcerers from the, from the, from the forests uh, or the hills. Yeah. Yeah. From the, in the, yep. right. Yeah. In the village. Yeah. So maybe, maybe. That, and I suppose that you could make a case there for Asia having a more sinister backstory or, or connection to this other world of quote unquote magic people in the world because of that. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. So we certainly hope you have comments, thoughts, corrections, and complaints, and that you bring them to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, Twitter, or email. You can find out how to do that in the show notes. Let us know what you think about this rather short little chapter. Tell us if you think that Barnox, this is an effective form of torture. Is this, in your (laughs) professional opinion, as one who knows a lot about torture now, having gone through a whole book written by torture, how do you feel about the the way these country bumpkins are taking on the professional forms of torture of themselves it depends on what you mean by effective right you if what you want is something that you can build a fair around it's very effective yeah i mean in the end it seems to do that trick quite well but anyway leave a review on apple Podcasts and tell your wolf reading friends and until you hear from us next may the moira favor you take care everybody who's that knocking at my door you know I heard that not before Is it evil trying to get into my room? Who's that tapping at my window? Who's calling me to go to that place that is filled with dark and gloom? But the waters are so deep What you sow you must reap Now I hear standing outside there's no place to run and hide as he plucks my soul presses me to the floor who's that knocking at my door knocking. you know i've heard that knock before that knock is evil trying to get into my room he's trying to get into who's my that room at my window head continuing to blink continuing to blink i couldn't right so yeah oh go ahead go ahead no no go on go on oh i was gonna say go on go on that's right